So we're all clear on where we are here. We are still within the realm or the general context of what it looks like to live as people who, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, have two feet in the kingdom of God as we walk through a sin-stained, broken world. What we saw last week is that that reality creates a kingdom sort of love within the people of God. That love is active and tangible. That love is appropriate uh, in regard to the things of the world in light of its love for Jesus. And that love is abiding in the hearts of those who love Jesus. Today, we're going to see that this kingdom sort of love creates a particular relationship between pastors and parishioners or pastors and their congregation. And let me just give you the phrase that's going to guide us over the course of walking through this passage of scripture. By their life and by their teaching, good pastors remind us that Jesus is better and facilitate gospel obedience within our congregations. Let me say that again because this this is going to form the outline of what we're doing during this time. By their life and by their preaching, good pastors remind us that Jesus is better and facilitate gospel obedience within our congregations. Let me just start with a word about biblical relationships. Relationships in the Bible are always reciprocal and complementary in their function. No matter what relationship we're talking about, the Bible makes it clear that relationships function best when both parties are committed to upholding their God-ordained and God-glorifying responsibility within that relationship. And it's a grace of God that we can know exactly what those responsibility or roles are because God in his goodness has given us that in his word. He's laid it out for us. Let me just give some quick examples before we look specifically at the one that's in front of us today. Example number one, Jesus and his people. How do they relate with one another? This is our supreme relationship. In fact, it's out of that relationship that all the rest of these flow. In fact, we mentioned this last week, but this relationship that we're about to look at today is created because we're people who belong to the kingdom by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, not people who are trying to earn our way into the kingdom. So we don't act in a certain way toward one another as pastor and congregation in order to get into the kingdom. We act a certain way because we've been brought into the kingdom. Jesus gave himself for the church. He did all that was necessary to secure our salvation, to draw us into faith, and he will hold us firm until the end. And we're to live lives, the reciprocal part of this is that we live lives that worship him, that glorify him. We give our whole lives dedicated to him in a Romans 12, one and two sort of way that in view of God's mercy to us in Jesus, we present our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, Jesus and his people. That's reciprocal. Husbands and wives, you can see this in Ephesians 5 or Colossians chapter 3. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word and the other side of that, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It's reciprocal. The gospel creates a mutual reciprocal love. Parents and children. Again, you can see this in Ephesians 6. 
throughout the book of Proverbs. You can see it even specifically in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And then it's affirmed uh, in the New Testament that parents are told, do not stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in training and in the instruction of the Lord. And then the other side of that, children, obey your parents in the Lord's. Reciprocal, something on both sides. Employees and employers. The book of Proverbs talks about this in numerous places. Again, you can see it in various New Testament texts. Employers are to be fair. They're to pay uh, an employee what their work is due. They're not to be threatening, bullying, or domineering. Employees, on the other hand, are to work hard as if working for the Lord and not for men. And they're to do so whether their employer is watching or not because working hard glorifies the Lord. Relationships within the church. Depending on how your translation renders a very particular Greek word, there are north of 50 one another statements in the New Testament that pertain to how it is that the church relates to each other. In fact, there are 59. That word appears 59 different times in the New Testament. The point is this. Those relationships are a two-way street. We do all of those things, those 59 statements, for one another in a reciprocal, mutual way because we've been brought into the family of God by the work of Jesus. And so today, as I mentioned, we're going to see the reciprocal relationship that exists between a pastor or a church leader and their congregation. That by their life and by their preaching, good pastors remind us that Jesus is better and they facilitate gospel obedience within our congregation. So I'm just going to break that statement down as we work through the passage. First, by their life. That's the first piece. We're going to work with this paragraph here in Hebrews as a whole rather than in a linear fashion. So I'm going to pull forward various portions of this so that we can see all the pieces of this together. Hebrews 13:7, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you and carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. Verse 18, Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. So how does this work? What are the mutual reciprocal sides of this? Well, let's start with the pastor side. There's one main responsibility here, and that's that pastors are to set an example of holiness and obedience among the congregation that they lead. It's a common illustration, a uh, Uh, sort of analogy that's often used that talks about the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. The thermometer reads the temperature in a room, whereas a thermostat sets the temperature in a room. The New Testament picture of a pastor among their congregation is that they set the temperature of holiness for their congregation. Follow me as I follow Christ. That they... Uh, live in such a way that there is something worthy of imitating. That would be to use Hebrews language. That there would be reason for a congregation to look at the person that leads their congregation and think to themselves, yes, I would want to live a life that looks like that, that has that sort of obedience. Pastors are not called to a life of sinless perfection any more than any other believer is. They're not saved by their job title. They're not saved by their Uh, behavior. They're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, just like anyone else. But they are called to live a life that those within their congregation would count worthy of imitating. Pastors are called to conduct themselves honorably in everything. That would be to 
Borrow the language of Hebrews 13, verse 18. You can see this in other New Testament passages. Paul tells Titus in Titus 1.6 that among the other qualifications for those who lead within a church, one is that they ought to be living a life that is above reproach. Paul says to Timothy in a parallel list of uh, qualifications for those who lead within a church to set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, to pay attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 and 16. What's that mean on the congregation's side? We saw this last week. That as a congregation, we should carefully observe those who lead our church. We should examine, reflect, call to mind. That's literally what the, the carefully observe there means uh, in the original Greek in the passage in Hebrews. We should imitate them, mimic or emulate, allow the model of their life to call you into greater obedience and holiness. Not because you're trying to win their favor, not because you're trying to win their approval, not because you think that by doing so you gain yourself you know, some sort of like spiritual brownie points with God in heaven or something, but simply because the image of their life and their wrestling to follow Jesus reminds you that you can do the same. And then there's another piece in here, Hebrews 13, 18, the very beginning of that verse. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray that your pastors or leaders would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit to live lives that are obedient to Jesus. Let me just kind of call to the forefront here something that exists within American Christianity uh, that I think is a little bit unique to us, maybe not entirely, but it's definitely a cultural phenomenon within the church right now. Because of I, I, the internet, because of social media, uh, it's very easy in our world right now for congregations to drift into or the body of believers, kind of big C church, to drift into almost like hero worship or making celebrities out of pastors. When scripture calls us to imitate our leaders, to imitate those who lead our congregations, it's not calling us to like bow down and worship the people that are leading our churches. It's calling us to imitate those individuals because they point us to Jesus. That is the reason why, that their life would be a picture of the life of Jesus, an imperfect one, one that's marked by a wrestling with their own flesh, one that is not you know, achieving some sort of sinless perfection that makes them more worthy of salvation than anyone else, but one that in humble recognition of the grace that has saved them, walks in obedience to Jesus. And then we look at them, not in order to lift them up on a pedestal, not because we want to somehow you know, like hold them up higher than the rest of our congregation, but because the model of their life reminds us that it's possible to wrestle with sin. It's possible to allow the Holy Spirit to work in such a way in our lives that we are sanctified over the course of our relationship with Jesus. And that reminder inspires us to do likewise. By their lives, that was the first part. Second part of our statement, and by their preaching. Look at verses eight and nine in Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace. 
How does this work mutually? What's the reciprocal kind of mutual love look like here? Well, there are two responsibilities on the pastor's side. Number one, preach the gospel. Just the gospel. The truth of the fact that all who by true faith and repentance give themselves up to and for the glory of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as their creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, will find God as a father who takes them as his redeemed children, forgiving their sin through the atoning and pardoning work of the Son and giving them daily grace and sanctifying power by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That gospel message, that is what a pastor lovingly gives to their congregation. Why? Because a good pastor, and I used that phrase intentionally in the middle of our sentence here, a good pastor understands that what their congregation needs more than anything is that message all the time. It's not a message of self-help. It's not a message of entertainment. It's not even really a message of motivation or something. It's a simple reminder that recenters our hearts and our minds on the reality that God has given us everything that we need in order for the deepest satisfaction of our souls in his son, Jesus Christ, and in giving us the Holy Spirit that gives us the power and makes tangible in our lives the grace by which we can savor the son and live in response to the son. And so the pastor just preaches the gospel over and over and over and applies it in all of its unique and multifaceted ways into the realities of the lives of the people in their congregation. They make that grace available to all people all the time. Jared C. Wilson, who is a, uh, he's a professor, he's a writer, an author, he's been a pastor, he's a speaker. He says this, that every church and therefore every pastor has a responsibility to put the grace down low where everyone who wants it can reach it. That is the job of the pastor. There's a second piece here, and that's to preach against false gospels. Don't be led by various kind, don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings. It's the pastor's job to help ensure that the people in a congregation know the difference between the truth of the gospel and anything lesser. It's the pastor's job to be sure that the people in a congregation can spot a counterfeit from the real thing. It's the pastor's job to labor toward the people in a congregation being able to hear the lies of our culture and the twisting of the gospel and know that that is a wolf in sheep's clothing and that that wolf is simply saying what itching ears want to hear. That phrase, various kinds of strange teachings, literally means alien or foreign or from another place. Alien to what? Alien to the truth of the gospel. From a foreign place other than what? From the truth of God's word and his eternal work in salvation and in redemption. The great fight in this regard in our day is a willingness by pastors to call false gospels what they are. They're lies. In the words of J.I. Packer, a half-truth presented as the whole truth is a complete lie. I wanna bring to light two of these half-truths in our culture right now that often get presented as whole truths 
but are actually complete lies. And I think it's the obligation of every pastor who's going to preach the truth of the gospel and make grace available for all to point out the false nature, the lie that is, number one, the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel holds out a false promise of happiness and ease and comfort and wealth in this life while offering nothing in terms of eternal salvation or surpassing joy and thus robbing the gospel of its central element, which is the glory of God on display in the giving of his son for the sins of his people. The prosperity gospel is a lie. There's nothing in scripture that would tell you that because of God's grace received by faith in Jesus Christ, all of life is going to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. That simply doesn't exist. And to try to make scripture say that is to present a half truth as a whole truth that actually presents a complete lie. It's false. It's a lie. And we need to be able to define the truth of the gospel so that we can speak against that. Here's a second one that I think we need to be able to speak against. And that's a kind of liberal theology. And that's lumping together a a broad spectrum. And when I say liberal, I don't mean anything political. I'm not talking, you know, political liberal versus conservative. I'm, I'm using that phrase Uh, as something that theologians and pastors use to lump together a segment of teaching that holds out Jesus as a great moral teacher, holds out his death as something that's simply a moral example of what it looks like to love at the highest level, and then essentially calls humanity to a form of self-salvation by doing likewise takes away the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and says, Jesus was a great moral example of what a life of love looks like. And his death is the supreme picture of what that love is. And what it is to follow Jesus is just to do likewise and live in that way. And I guess, hope you did enough when all is said and done so that you might be saved yourself. That's a lie. That's not true. And it's a pastor's job to point out false teachings that are strange and alien to the truth of scripture and to do so motivated by a passion for the truth of the gospel that has saved the pastor and will save anyone else and thus creates a compassion for their people, a love for them, that desperately longs for them to hear the truth of the gospel the only thing that can ultimately satisfy the deepest longings of their soul. What's on the congregation side? Well, these are implicit within this, but number one is listen. Any pastor worth hearing is standing up on a Sunday morning, not because they like to hear themselves talk, not because they want the applause of the congregation, but because they want to make visible for the people of their congregation the beauty of the gospel. Listen. Hear that. Take it in. Fight the urge to doze off. Pay attention to the truth of Scripture. Don't just listen to the pastor speaking, but listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying through the words of the pastor and through the words of Scripture. And be discerning. That's the second one. Guard what you're willing to listen to. Choose carefully who you're willing to be led by. Observe their life carefully. 
Listen to what they preach carefully. Don't just let anyone hold the role of pastor in your life. Be discerning. That's an act of love. And then third, believe. Believe for the first time. Believe more deeply. Believe in prayer. Believe in the promises of the gospel and the promises of scripture. And maybe like the individual in the gospels, believing looks like crying out to the Lord in prayer and saying, I believe, help my unbelief. But if we're going to hold to the truth of the gospel, that's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and not be led astray by strange, various kinds of strange teachings, we need to believe the truth of the gospel. So where are we? By their life and by their preaching, good pastors remind us that Jesus is better. That's the next part of this. Jesus is better. Look at verses 10 through 15. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Let me do a little bit of context here. We could deep dive just this six verse section, but I wanna keep the whole thing together. So the context here is that there's one main point being made. It's the same main point that's been made throughout the book. And that's that Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of all that the Old Testament was pointing toward. Verse 10, we don't worship at the tabernacle now because Jesus has brought us right to the throne of God in heaven. That's a place that Christians have access to. No one else. Verse 11, the bodies of the sacrificed animals from the day of atonement in the Old Testament were taken outside the camp and burned. What happened to Jesus's body after it was sacrificed? It resurrected. He was brought back to life. He's a better picture of that sacrifice or he's the fulfillment of that picture that was offered in those sacrifices. Verses 12 and 13, in a similar way, Jesus bearing the disgrace of our sin took his living body outside the gate of Jerusalem to be sacrificed on our behalf at Calvary. He went outside the gate or outside the camp, not to have his body be burned, but to offer it as a sacrifice. And now in verse 14, we have this enduring city that awaits us in eternity, which the author of Hebrews has been talking about since chapter 12. Jesus, who has, is better, has secured all of that for us in a way that the laws, the regulations, the sacrifices, the figures of the Old Testament could not. Jesus is better. And so on the pastor's side, there's one responsibility. And I would say this is the one responsibility that is chief among all that a pastor does. And that's to continually point the people of their congregation in one direction, to Jesus. Only ever pointing them to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The pastor does not point to any lesser thing. The pastor does not point to themselves. 
The pastor is not primarily trying to entertain people. He's not primarily trying to motivate people. The pastor's aim is not to produce great sound bites that can be posted and get lots of likes on Instagram. The pastor's primary aim is not to be venerated and worshiped by their congregation. The pastor's aim is that their congregation would venerate and worship one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus, who is supremely better than anything else. The goal of a pastor's entire ministry is simple. Make Jesus visible week in and week out, both from the way that they live and from the way that they preach in the pulpit. One aim, magnify Jesus by displaying Jesus with their words and with their actions. The pastor in both life and teaching is consumed by a longing to do one thing, magnify Jesus, display Jesus, make Jesus known to the people of their congregation. And they do so by displaying Christ, explaining humanity's need for him, his sufficiency to save, his offer of himself as savior to all who turn to him, his securing of all the promises of scripture, his giving of the Holy Spirit as helper, comforter, guide, sanctifier. The congregation has two responsibilities on the reciprocal side of that. Number one is what the passage here, this six verse section says, which is go to Jesus. Go to him. It's part of listening and believing is going to Jesus. I, I would say this, if you're someone who's, who's a part of our congregation and you're in and uh, whether online or you're in person with us when, we're, when that was a thing, I don't, that used to be a thing where we used to get together and you would sit and you would listen to whoever got up here to preach God's word and they would urge you to go to Jesus. Go. Don't wait. It's the reciprocal side of this relationship is not just that the pastor would stand up and preach and magnify Jesus. It's that you also would flee to Jesus, whether the first time for your salvation or that in all of life's struggles and trials and temptations and difficulties, you would flee to Christ because he's better. Then the other is this. It's where this section landed in verse 15. Offer the sacrifice of your life and lips. Live in obedience. That's your life. Bear witness. That's your lips. This is the sacrifice we make with our lives now. We don't come with animal sacrifices anymore. We come with the sacrifices of our lives and of our lips. And as a loving pastor, motivated by a passion for the gospel and a compassion for his people, preaches the truth of the gospel, lives an example of holiness by their life and makes known to you a Jesus that is better, what is your side of the reciprocal relationship, make a sacrifice of your life and lips. Live in response to Christ. There are times in the New Testament where Paul talks about the, the people in the churches that he's writing to and he says, you're my joy and crown. Why? Because they're making a sacrifice of their life and lips. And by seeing them do that, Paul's motivated to continue to do his side of the relationship where does all this end? The end of our statement is to facilitate gospel obedience. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable to you. There are two responsibilities here on the pastor's side and they're weighty. 
Number one, humbly understand the weight of the task of pastoring. And when you step into that role, you're keeping watch over the souls of people, offering them the only thing that's profitable, the gospel, caring and serving and shepherding them always toward Jesus. That's a weighty responsibility. And then a second piece of that is that the pastor ministers with an eye toward the accounting that they will have to give one day. We'll all, regardless of profession, stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. But when the pastor stands there before the throne, that accounting will include the faithfulness with which they carried out the task of leading God's people. James 3 verse 1 says, Not many should become teachers, pastors, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. We minister, pastors minister with an eye toward that. And they do so with joy, not out of obligation. First Peter 5, shepherds God, God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. What's the congregation side of this? Well, it's kind of like an an interesting statement in the middle of verse 17 there. It's that the congregation's mutual love in this would be to make the pastor's task easy. Don't cause grief. Obedience and submission is what the congregation is told to offer. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That obedience and submission is not to some authoritarian rule by a person who's power hungry or domineering, but it's to the truth of the gospel as preached by a humble and loving pastor. That is what enables a person to obey and submit. Obey and submit the truth of the gospel. Obey and submit the truth of scripture as it's preached week in and week out so that the person who's doing the preaching and doing the leading of your congregation can do so with joy, not grief. The mutuality of that is spiritually profitable both for the pastor and for the congregation. But let me say what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you try to make things easy for the pastor by not coming to them when you have needs or you have struggles or you need counsel or you need care. That's not what is being talked about here. It doesn't mean that you sit quietly under a pastor who's domineering or authoritarian or is heavy-handed in the way that they deal with the congregation. It does mean that you do your part in a mutual relationship, observing, imitating, listening, discerning, believing, obeying, submitting to the truth of the gospel. And what I would say is the cornerstone of a congregation's mutual part of this relationship praying. I want to end this with some sort of searching questions. The first one is this. Are you discerning about the pastors, the voices, and the models that you let into your life? I assume that you've tried to be discerning about your participation in this local body, but what about the individuals that you listen to on a podcast or the books that you read? Are you discerning the truth of their message 
in evaluating whether or not it's a foreign, strange teaching? Are you putting it through the lens of the truth of the gospel as preached week in and week out here within our church? Whether in this church or another church, does the pastor only hear from you when you have a complaint? Is that the time that you decide to engage or interact with the pastor? Do you only listen if the pastor is being funny or telling a story that is entertaining or that you might enjoy? Let me end with this one. Does the pastor of your church in any phase of your life, in any season of your life, only receive your prayer when you're praying that they would do something that you feel is in your best interest? Look, every job has unique pressures. If you're a doctor or a nurse in this particular season in our world, there are unique pressures associated with your job. If you're a teacher and you've had to navigate virtual learning over the last 10 weeks or eight weeks or whatever it's been, that's a unique pressure. If you're a lawyer, there's unique pressure when you put together a case. If you're an accountant, there's unique pressure during tax season. If you're a stay-at-home mom, there's unique pressure in that. And there's unique pressure in being a pastor. Just recently, over uh, even just a handful of days, in my personal circle of pastors that I know, I've seen one pastor removed from their position due to a moral failing, and I've seen another pastor who committed suicide due to the unique pressures of being a pastor. Those pressures always exist. Those pressures are ever-present in the life of the pastor of your congregation. Part of what it is to live in mutual kingdom kind of love for one another between a pastor and a congregation is that as the pastor lovingly, humbly, gently preaching and living the gospel before you, that as a congregation, you come alongside that individual in prayer. I'm not one who talks frequently about spiritual attack or the work of Satan. I think our flesh gives us plenty to wrestle with, but I do believe that there is specific and um, targeted spiritual attack that happens in the life of church leaders all over the world. If we were in a persecuted place, the pastor would be the first one either thrown into prison, shot, or beheaded when a church was discovered. If we were at different times, even in our own country here, there were seasons where pastors would face particular kind of attention for bringing out truths of the gospel in contrast to uh, the prevailing sort of culture in our society. And in our world today, there are very unique and specific ways that Satan attacks pastors because if you can get the leader of a church to fall you can probably get a church of people to scatter. Pray. And so I want to end this in a very specific way. And that's, I would love for you, uh, wherever you are, to close your time in this service. And we're just going to let, you know, we're going to let the video end, but close your time in service, praying for
your pastor. And I get that that sounds a little bit self-serving because I'm one of those, but for all the pastors on our staff, other pastors that have been part of your life uh, in various seasons, pray for them that they would conduct themselves honorably in all things and live a life that exemplifies the the gospel, setting a temperature of holiness for their congregations, that they would preach the truth of the gospel and stand against false gospels, that they would gently come alongside their congregations in all seasons, pointing people to a Jesus who is better, and then that by doing those things, they would make it easy for their congregations to live in a gospel obedience, in a mutually loving relationship. So I I want you to close your time by just spending some time praying for your pastor there. Uh, And when you're done, you can go about the rest of your day. It's been a privilege to worship you and to open God's word with you. We love you and we'll see you in this digital space again soon.